So, I really appreciate everyone coming. Uh, hey Scott, it's good to see you. Um, my name is Rick Archer, and I'm the creator and host of Buddha and the Gas Pump interview show. Or it seems like I'm the creator and host. People come up to me and say, oh, thank you for everything you're doing. And I think, am I actually doing anything? <laughs> that's not meant to be a spiritual cliche. It's just really the sense that it's kind of happening, and I'm just hanging on for the ride or something. <laughs> um, in any case, I really appreciate your attendance and your attention because there's some wonderful things going on in other rooms simultaneously, and it's a real honor to, to have you all here. My talk today is on a topic that I've given a lot of thought to over the years. You know, some people have graduate degrees in ethics, and they study it at Harvard and so on and so forth. I certainly don't, but I've been a participant in and an observer of the spiritual scene for 50 years, and um, I've run into a lot of things, especially since I've started doing this interview show, and I get all kinds of feedback you know, from people, and uh, you know, met a number of interesting spiritual teachers over the years, some of the famous ones, hung out with them, and this whole topic of the ethics of enlightenment has always intrigued me, and I think it's gaining currency in the spiritual culture that we're all part of, uh, something that needs to be better understood and addressed. Incidentally, in this talk, I got a lot of help from some people I've interviewed. I've been emailing back and forth with people such as Shunyamurti, Greg Good, David Buckland, who's running the camera here, Timothy Conway, Peter Cutler, Elena Nizinski, and a couple of people who haven't been on that yet, um, a fellow named Chris Atwood, and a friend of mine named Heiner Olson. And some of the things that I'll say here are lifted directly from emails they've sent me. Oh, and incidentally, I'm, I'm going to read a lot of these notes because there's a lot of material I want to get out. And it would be more interesting if I could just speak it all extemporaneously, but I will miss things if I do. So I'll get through this, and then I hope there'll be some time for discussion. So words like ethics, you know, and morality have kind of an unpleasant connotation um, for many people. They, they bring up images of overbearing, dogmatic, abusive religious figures, you know, many of whom it turned out were unethical hypocrites. So this talk is not meant to encourage people to be dogmatic or moralistic or judgmental, but if you've been on the spiritual path for some time, chances are you've run into situations, or at least heard about them, in which gurus or teachers have been misbehaving in various ways. In fact, after a while, it almost seems like the norm rather than the exception, and you begin to wonder, what's going on? And so, very often these people seem to be very spiritually advanced and their teachings seem to be beneficial. But I've run into a number of people who have been burned a few times and they've become cynical about the motives of all gurus and teachers. And some have even lost faith in spirituality altogether. And I think that's a shame. So, what do we mean by ethical behavior? Who's to say what's right and wrong? Incidentally, there are, a lot more, there are probably more question marks at the ends of sentences in here than there are periods. And if you hear a sentence that has a period at the end of it, it's still an opinion. And opinions are subject to revision. And I don't mean to present anything in sort of an absolute way. Hopefully the tone, that tone won't come across. So, you know, ethical standards vary from culture to culture and from age to age. Some cultures condone things that most of us would consider barbaric. Um, is there any universal standard of ethical behavior? Are, are all norms somewhat arbitrary? I think there's a spectrum. At one end are things like rape and pedophilia and other things that seem universally unethical. Um, 
working on the Sabbath, eating meat, even polygamy, and kind of more, you know, gray area stuff uh, that many cultures consider okay. Uh, obviously, meat, big thing in most cultures, no problem with most people. Some people would consider unethical, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals. Um, and then there are things that are accepted in some cultures, such as female genital mutilation, which I think it should be at the unacceptable end of the spectrum universally. Uh, and in the more enlightened world, hopefully will be. Um, okay. Ethical behavior is good for you. Most spiritual traditions regard ethical behavior not only as a reflection of spiritual development, but as a prerequisite to it. Most have some notion of karma, and say that if we hurt others, it will come back to us and impede our own spiritual evolution. Both Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism teach that cultivating an ethical outlook prepares one for the deep insights required for non-dual realization. In Buddhism, students are encouraged to develop deep compassion even before beginning with the teachings on emptiness. In uh, The Art of Happiness in a Troubled World, the Dalai Lama is quoted as saying, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. <laughs> so, anyway, slice it. It's good for you. Living ethically, and again, that term needs further definition as we go on, makes the mind more open and subtle, and thus more capable of deep, non-dual insight. There are several different perspectives that people tend to lock into, one or the other. And I prefer a more inclusive perspective that might include them all. I think people run into trouble when they don't recognize that all perspectives, even though they may be paradoxically opposed to one another, are simultaneously true, each in their own domain. Enlightenment, we might say, is the coexistence of transcendental, divine, and embodied or imminent qualities. So, for instance, some might say, I hear people say this all the time, only unity is real and important. Non-dual teachings should be descriptive, not prescriptive. Prescriptive teachings can only address a so-called person which doesn't really exist. You've probably heard that. So we end up with non-dual teachers who claim not to be a person, acting unethically and claiming that no one is doing it and that the world is unreal. <laughs> I'm not going to name names, but there was a person I interviewed a couple of times whose interviews I took down when I was contacted by a woman who, at the age of 15 or 16, had been repeatedly raped by him, Bill Cosby style, and who, who had been pressed into service as a stripper, being told that the body is unreal, the world is Maya, and it doesn't, and you are not, you are the self, you are not the body, or this world of appearance, using a spiritual teaching to condone and justify that kind of behavior. And it's extremely shocking to me. A friend of mine said, I know a man who was stealing from a store daily for over a year, a $1 piece of cake wrapped in cellophane. When a friend would tell him not to do it or ask him why he was... Oh, wait a minute. I skipped to my second point. <laughs> Hang on a second. Um, so, anyway, the thing I said about that guy who was doing that stuff, this is a blatant misunderstanding of Maya, and such a belief will not prevent karmic backlashes from happening. And I think people are getting less and less tolerant of this kind of thing. Of course, no one would be tolerant of that, but even more minor infractions, people are getting less tolerant. They find the idea of a sage who can abuse or take advantage of others and still be granted the status of sage to be abhorrent. Another perspective is that it's not that there is no world, but the world is perfect just as it is. All is well and wisely put. It's all divinely orchestrated. 
And if you adopt this perspective exclusively, you may feel that you can do whatever you like because everything is perfect. Here's a bit about the cake. So this guy was stealing a piece of cake every day from a store for about a year. And when a friend told him not to do it, or asked him why he was doing it, he would say, Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman, so everything I do is right. My friend told this to the meditating administrator of a state health clinic, and he said, this is not unusual. We see this all the time. People get sort of brainwashed in non-duality. Here's another perspective. Ethical teachings aren't needed because, having realized one's true nature, one will inevitably and spontaneously act in the best interest of all beings concerned in the situation, something we might call spontaneous right action. Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe ideally it seems like it kind of makes sense, but it's really hard to find examples of it. And even if this were true, it would leave everyone who hadn't yet achieved realization without any ethical moorings until they had become realized. So why wait? So again, I prefer an all-inclusive approach. That all these perspectives have their relevance, but none can be taken to the exclusion of the others without creating some kind of imbalance. The highest teaching of Vedanta, as you know, is Aham Brahmasmi. Um, I am Brahman, and Tatvamasi, thou art that, thou art Brahman. And if, if we're really living in non-duality, then the chair and people and everything is just about as much a part of us as our arm is. You wouldn't intentionally hurt your own body because it's part of you. So if non-dual awareness is genuine, if everything is really seen as part of you, then, you know, Jesus said, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me, then uh, there shouldn't be any inclination to hurt anything or anyone. And if, some, and if there is, if, if people are behaving that way, that way, maybe we should question their realization. You shall know them by their fruits, you know? Um, on the topic of hypocrisy, if we claim or imply that we have realized our true nature and are offering to help others do the same, is it consistent for us to behave deceitfully, perversely, selfishly, or cruelly? Deceit might include lying about one's level of spiritual attainment, one's lifestyle or adherence to vows, claiming to be a celibate renunciate, if that is not really the case, um, supernormal claims, such as being a breathinarian or able to live on sunlight or something, some famous gurus have been excellent stage magicians, but have claimed that their miracles were real to fool the naive villagers and even many Westerners. And of course, then there are Christian evangelicals and, and, you know, who also use kind of stage tricks as well. Um, and then, you know, we get into gray areas. I mean, people claiming to be channeling beings from other galaxies or parallel universes or other times or dimensions. Should there be any criteria or ethical standards for such performances? Again, I'm asking a lot of questions here. I'm not saying this, that, or the other should be. Then there's the whole ayahuasca area I mean, and related things. Should people conducting these things be trained in diagnosis and dealing with bad trips? Um, should people be interviewed before they're given such substances to find out if they're psychologically strong enough to cope with the information they will receive during such an event? What if there's latent psychosis? What if someone admits beforehand that they have a history of schizophrenia? Should they be allowed, be allowed to take large doses of such hallucinogens? There isn't much regulation or oversight. Then there's the whole money issue. Um, churches routinely ask their members to tithe. Therapists charge for their time. Seminars and courses nearly always have a fee. Most retreat centers have to charge in order to keep functioning. Spiritual teachers have to pay the rent, just like any others. What ethical guidelines should there be around money? 
I interviewed Adya Sharmini the other day and asked him that question. He went on for 10, 15 minutes about it. So when that interview goes up, you might be interested in hearing his answer. It was good. Perhaps evaluation and enforcement of all teachers should be left up to their audience and the court of public opinion. P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute. Some people are going to excuse their teacher's behavior no matter how egregious. And also, there's a problem that spiritual seekers are often kind of naive and uh, innocent in a way, ungrounded, kooky, and easily <laughs> taken advantage of. Unless perhaps they've been around for a while and then they kind of learn the hardness. <laughs> but many, many times they start out that way. And there have been sad situations in which people have been taken advantage of and have had their, their faith shattered. So we need whatever regulations there may or not, may not ever be, and as there are in other professions, psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors and so on all have these codes of ethics they have to abide by on their boards which govern them and, and you know they can lose their license if they violate those guidelines. Maybe that'll happen someday with spiritual teachers in general, or maybe they'll spiritual teachers will always be like herding cats and it won't happen. But in any case, whether or not anything like that ever happens, it's incumbent upon the the student to develop discernment, I think, and discrimination, and to learn to make wise decisions. So, now this is a big question. Are higher consciousness and ethical behavior correlated? When I was a TM teacher and student and so on for many years, Maharishi always said that there's this tight correlation between higher consciousness and ethical behavior. So an enlightened person acts in accordance with all the laws of nature and you couldn't possibly do anything harmful if you're in a higher state of consciousness and so on. Um, but there seem to be so many violations and exceptions to that rule that I've really come to doubt that. Or, well, I'll elaborate as I go here. Is it possible to be an enlightened scoundrel? <laughs> Ken Wilber mentioned waking up and growing up and says that the two are not tightly correlated. And most famous gurus actually have done things that are kind of questionable. But had they reached the pinnacle of potential human potential? Or were, is it possible to be? A friend of mine just wrote a book called How Much Enlightenment is Enough. And he has pictures of glasses of water on the cover that are getting fuller and fuller. Here's a quote from the Sarvadatta Maharaj shortly before his death. He said, forget I am that. I've realized so much more since then. It's so much deeper. So I have this attitude that we're all works in progress. And that to have the opinion that there's some kind of static terminus point that, that we are going to reach or that this, that, and the other teacher has reached is only going to result in disappointment and, and confusion. Everybody's a work in progress, as far as I know. And I don't think I've ever met an exception that I'm... Well, I mean, I'm not qualified to judge people's level of development or anything, but as far as I can see. I think that the correlation between higher consciousness and ethical behavior is kind of like more like a stretchy rubber band than a tight, rigid pole of some sort. But God-realization and saintliness are associated for a reason. Traditionally, God-realization is correlated with the development of qualities like love, compassion, and so on. And in my book, in my opinion, Full enlightenment, if there is such a thing, or a great deal of enlightenment, would include their 
development. There could be some channel that, well, there are numerous examples of great Vedic sages who were tripped up by some latent tendency or subtle remnants of ego they didn't even know they had. There are many degrees of awakening prior to final enlightenment, if there even is such a thing. In my opinion, there is why we said this part. Um, if harmful, selfish behavior is displayed, it shouldn't be rationalized away. It indicates some lack of development that will need to be addressed. Okay, a point on purity. Words like purity and impurity may evoke all sorts of creepy religious judgments and abuses. I use the term in the Vedic sense of vasanas or impressions or gunas, sattvaradis and tamas. Someone, this, may, this sense may be a little shocking, but it gets better. Someone who rates children as being governed by impressions and impulses that are impure by comparison with those governing someone who dedicates himself to feeding starving children. The relative world is comprised of pairs of opposites and gradations in between. To disregard them is to render all values meaningless and to endorse nihilism. Here's some quote, here's an interesting thing from my friend Timothy Conway, who's been on that down a couple of times. He said, Buddhists and Hindus referred to the Asura, the Titan, or the demon types of consciousness. It can seem very powerful, very bright, very charismatic and enlightened, but it is more insidiously a syndrome afflicting someone who might think he is enlightened but is not, because he, she is still fueled by greed, aversion, delusion. It is especially alluring and misleading when the person has some lovely deva karma aspects mixed in, certain talents or virtues, such a combination of powerful light and dark tendencies can be very confusing to those lacking discernment. Ravana, this is the end of Timothy's quote, Ravana, for instance, the bad guy in the Ramayana would be an example. He was charismatic, learned, possessed numerous powers, but he was still operating from selfish motives. Then another consideration in all this, in which, and this whole talk to be expanded into a weekend or a whole semester or whatever. There's a lot to consider here. The whole issue of kundalini, there's such a thing as deflected rising, where kundalini rises to a certain point and then gets deflected or stuck. And a person can develop this, or can display the symptoms of enlightenment without actually being enlightened. Those symptoms can include tremendous shakti, darshan, inf you know, radiant influence, and yet and they, they, they appear, well, this guy must be enlightened, and yet there's something really off still. And the, the offness can get really extreme. Papaji warned, this is the Kali Yuga. Even Rakshasas, demons, will incarnate as teachers to mislead you. I'm reading his book, Holy Madness, by George Fernstein. It's very interesting. There's a section here from something called, I should have my reading glasses, it's from something called the Kula Smara Tantra or something. Um, there are many teachers, like lamps in house after house, but hard to find, O Davy is the teacher who lights up all like the sun. There are many teachers who are proficient in the Vedas and the Shastras, but hard to find, O Devi, is the teacher who has attained to the supreme truth. There are many teachers on earth who give what is other than, than the self, capitalist, but hard to find in all the world, O Devi, is the teacher who reveals the self. There are many of the teachers who rob the disciple of his wealth, but rare is the teacher who removes the disciple's affliction. He is the true teacher by whose very contact there flows a supreme bliss. The intelligent man should choose such a one as his teacher and none other. Can we judge or understand the behavior of the enlightened? 
It is often suggested that an enlightened being's behavior is beyond our capacity to understand, that we should accept on faith that he is acting in accordance with divine will. So, for instance, it seems that the divine has a fondness for Rolls Royces, or young women, or young boys, or whatever, and, and those are obvious allusions to actual situations in which people just said, well, I'm ignorant, this guy's enlightened, and I don't understand this, but I'm just going to go along with it because it's beyond my capacity to understand enlightened behavior. Again, discrimination, discernment. Now, this all might get to sound a little judgmental at this point, and, you know, as you know, Jesus said, judge not that ye be not judged, and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? We've all seen examples of people adopting holier-than-thou attitudes, laying trips on people, and perhaps even we've done it ourselves. But at the same time, we must be discriminated. We have a right and an obligation to evaluate a potential teacher, to call them on their stuff if necessary, and to leave if they're not receptive. At a symposium of Western Buddhist teachers, the Dalai Lama had strong words for teachers who abuse their power and students who give theirs away. Quote, a teacher who behaves unethically or asks students to do so can be judged as lacking in ultimate insight, his holiness said. As far as my own understanding goes, the two claims that you are not subject to precepts and you are free, these are the result of incorrect understanding. No behavior is free from consequences. For this reason, true wisdom always includes compassion, the understanding that all things and beings are interconnected with and vulnerable to each other. Even though one's realization may be higher than the high beings, His Holiness said, one's behavior should conform to the human way of life. When teachers break the precepts, behaving in ways that are clearly damaging to themselves and others, students must face the situation, even though this can be challenging. Criticize openly, His Holiness declared, that is the only way. If there is incontrovertible evidence of wrongdoing, Teachers should be confronted with it. They should be allowed to admit their wrongs, make amends, and undergo a rehabilitation process. If a teacher won't respond, teachers should, uh, students should publish the situation in a newspaper, not admitting the teacher's name, his holiness said. The fact that the teacher may have done any other good things should not keep us silent. On the issue of readiness to teach, there is almost always a lag between realization and its full embodiment. Assuming the role of the spiritual teacher can confront you with challenges you wouldn't otherwise face. The very act of teaching channels some sort of higher energy. You tend to become brighter, more eloquent, more charismatic. People are attracted to you, sometimes sexually. They start thinking you're special, that you know something they don't know. It can easily go to your head. I think we've all seen this happen. There's definitely a need for teachers. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that everybody should wait 10 years after realization, although some traditions say that. They advise waiting years after awakening before beginning to teach. After his awakening, Ramana marinated in a cave for years. Swami Atmananda never gave satsang until he and his master agreed he was ready. It took years. I've been told that in the Zen tradition, one is supposed to wait 10 years after awakening before beginning to teach. Thich Nhat Hanh was always diligent in his own actions and motivations. He felt that if he ever slipped in some way, he would immediately stop teaching. He felt that his life was his teaching. Um, when I became a TM teacher in 1970, at the age of 21, Maharshi said to us, said, when a war is raging, there's no time to train sharpshooters. Just hand them a rifle and send them out. But we didn't claim to be awakened. We were just a bunch of kids taught to impart a technique. My girlfriend, after I became a TM teacher, told me, 
I thought TM teachers were saints until I got to know you. <laughs> <laughs> I took that as helpful feedback. <laughs> well, then there's the whole issue of crazy wisdom, which is discussed at length in this book. I'm very skeptical of anyone excusing egregious behavior as crazy wisdom. There have been legitimate examples of crazy wise adults, holy fools, rascal gurus, but for every genuine one, there have been many who use crazy wisdom as an excuse for bad behavior. Jesus said, I quoted this earlier, you shall know them by their fruits. In evaluating a teacher, perhaps we should ask ourselves, do I want to become like this person? Traditionally, these holy fools that you read about in this book and elsewhere were humble, meek, and self-abnegating. They went to extremes to avoid adulation or appearing special. They were sitting on dung heaps and things. In contrast to this, recent pardon. <laughs> In contrast to this, recent or contemporary teachers whose behavior is excused as crazy wisdom have often tended to be self-indulgent, ostentatious, grandiose. Then there's the whole issue of free will. You know, some people say this whole issue, this whole talk about ethics and morality and behavior and all this moot because we have absolutely no free will. Ramesh Dalsakar contended that we're just governed by our genetics and our conditioning, and that too has been used by some as an alibi for misbehavior. I do think that people act according to their level of consciousness, their degree or purity or uh, purity or impurity, their conditioning, etc. Someone who is rather stunted by those measures can't just decide to act like a saint. But ethical guidelines give people something to adhere to within their capacity to do so, like traffic rules. My final quote here, and then we can take some, some discussion, is that it is this integration of one and two that makes life. Non-duality is one thing, but living non-duality is another. To live non-duality takes heart. We have to love something, everything. We have to take the false appearance as beautiful and precious. If we don't, it is a lifeless non-duality. It is a principle, not a life. So there's a mic right there. So anybody, any thoughts, feedback, discussion? Did you, you know, agree, disagree? What do you feel about that? Yeah, please go on the mic. One other question, just an observation about the point that you were making earlier, Rick, which is the correlation between higher single consciousness and unethical behavior. I'm wondering if maybe uh, you do not quite understand uh, what is the standard for higher single consciousness, and maybe we should begin with that. Yeah. And then finding if there is an equal way or equal, or equal plane would be uh, to even be formulated, because the correlation can be. Uh, uh, not happening simply because we have a misconception of what it is. Yeah, that's a really good point. I have this attitude for what it's worth. Well, like Ken Wilber again, I haven't read him extensively, but I'm told that he refers to lines of development, there are all these different lines, and the lines can get pretty out of whack with one another. But if I were to use the word enlightenment, which I tend to avoid because it has such a superlative quality to it, sort of a static quality, I would regard it as a holistic development in which all those lines have been brought along to a very great degree and in, are in correlation with one another. It doesn't mean you're going to be at, like, I mean, there are many things human beings can do. It doesn't mean you're going to have all of them. You're not necessarily going to be an excellent basketball player or something. But with regard to the, the virtues and the, and the behavior and, and that kind of thing, and the wisdom, and, and even things like sensory refinement and blossoming of the heart, and 
also all those kinds of more spiritual faculties, I would say those should all be at a, at a pretty good peak. And um, if some of them are really found to be lacking, then then I don't think it would deserve the term enlightenment, in my estimate, in my opinion. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Exactly what I was thinking, just redefining this concept of higher state of consciousness to be yeah. a lot more holistic and integrated. And, yeah. Good. Wow. Thank you. Sure. Um, thanks for your talk. I was thinking, just from my own perspective, there's not just intentional harm that's caused to you, there's also unintentional harm. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about whether someone somewhere along the process of enlightenment still has that ability to unintentionally harm it, and if that's helpful. I'm sure that you do. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm nowhere near enlightenment as I would define it, but um, I've certainly caused unintentional harm at times in my life. There's a Buddhist sage of your named Padmasambhava, and he said, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Don Juan in the Carlos Castaneda book said that Carlos said, a warrior has time only for his impeccability. So those two quotes imply to me a, a, a sense of vigilance, a, a lack of sloppiness, where you can't just sort of wallow in your unboundedness and then behave any way you like. There needs to be an integration in which you have balanced the unbounded awareness with skillful action and harmlessness would be a big part of that skillful action. I have one quick follow-up then. That's very helpful. Um, I guess where I'm also thinking is, um, is unintentional harm avoidable at all? Like, will it always occur when you're an incarnate being? Yeah, I mean, you walk down the sidewalk and you step on little creatures and things, so there's, there's always going to be some, and I mean, the Jains would start themselves to death to avoid taking any life. Um, but would it really be, is it really harm to eat a, a carrot or even a chicken, um, you know, in the big scheme of things? Uh, so these are all gray areas subject to discussion and definition and so on. But uh, I think at least the, the aspiration to not be harmful, intentionally or unintentionally, is a, is a lovable one. Hi. Hi. I'm Air, and I'm delighted that this is happening. I kind of wish there were more people in here. Oh, that's a pretty good crew. But I've come through the, the trenches of experiencing abuse and things like that earlier on. So anyway, I'm glad this year. But I'm just finishing a finder's course, and Jeffrey Barton was studying, you know, different teachers. And, uh, um, and one of the things he said is that he finds that people were stealing before they moved into a persistent non-dual, they may still steal afterwards. He's not finding a high correlation mm. of a chip. Yeah. Some, but not real high. Right. And the other thing he said is that when people do shift into an awakened current persistent state, that they tend to lose more the capacity to observe themselves. Yeah. I disagree with Jeffrey on some of that and debated it with him a little bit. In fact, the one thing he said was that when they shift into a particular state, I forget which state he called it, you know, they, they tend to become very flat and emotionless and, and life becomes rather insipid and they want to move back to a previous state in order to have more juiciness in life. And I said, no, Jeffrey, there's a flat state that you, you get into at a certain stage, but then beyond that, moving forward rather than backward, it all begins to blossom again and get much more rich. 
Okay, so people who were like stealing before and stealing afterwards, I just say their work's in progress. Yeah. I was just wondering if you think that the true issue lies in teaching people on their spiritual path how to make more authentic choices that are in alignment with their consciousness. Because I work with a lot of women over the past 20 years, and I feel like when, when we are we, we are spiritual beings having this human experience with all these desires and, and choices that you want to make, but I think it's trying to be authentic to yourself when you're not alone in this world. You you start as you start to get you know grow in life, you start to multiply yourself with children and families and responsibilities, and so I think that's where the challenge lies. Yeah, and ultimately I think we are our own barometer. If we culture a sort of a self-referral awareness kind of way of functioning, then you know we get indicators and signals from within ourselves when we're out of alignment with something. And so we don't necessarily need to rely on external authorities as much. And, and if we could really evaluate it better than ourselves, well, maybe it was that Robert Burns poem, to see ourselves as others see us. But still, I think that's an important, important component if we could you know, culture that kind of inner barometer or antenna so that, you know, little alarm bells go off if, if we're moving out of alignment. I think I'm out of time. Am I really out of time? Yeah. All right, I'm so sorry. It's a lively discussion. We can go on a long time with this, but I guess this is just a taste, some food for thought. So thank you very much for coming.